one and all to a very special edition of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Redness. I am your second host, but no lesser on that account, uh, <laughs> Dr. Greenfield. I would never imply such a thing, Dr. G. <laughs> hmm. And uh, we're, we're slightly veering off track a little bit today. We're doing something that I believe we've never done before. No way. I know, I know. It's a special, special time. <laughs> we decided that uh, it might be opportune to revisit a topic that we've covered in the past for yeah. HSE students. This, yeah. this is actually, yes, this is a new turn for us. It is. We've never really gone back in time to revisit a topic before. No, so apologies for like completely steaming ahead centuries and centuries from where we were currently uh, visiting in Rome, but we're now going to return. Well, I think it's important to explain why we're doing that. Yes, exactly. What would be the point? (laughs) Basically, within Australia, because I feel like we have some international listeners, there is an examination at the end of schooling called the Higher School Certificate. (laughs) It's very exciting. It is. And the, the core topic that everybody does is Cities of Vesuvius. And so... After sort of listening to some of our back catalogue, we decided that our episode of Vesuvius could perhaps be more helpful for said HSC students. Mm. And so we are going to uh, return to that topic, even though it's really not where we were up to. <laughs> Jumping right back in into our... the fire yeah. of the volcano. Oh, very nice, yeah. <laughs> so let us begin. It was a dark and stormy night. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I believe it was at least daytime. Yes. Yeah, at least was. initially. Yeah. No, I'm just getting into the, the novelistic turn mm, of things. But mm. uh, I'm, leaping, I'm leaping ahead once again. Let's, Pliny uh, woke up with a sense of foreboding. Yeah, that's right. It was quiet on the mountainside. <laughs> or so they thought. No, no, no. Basically, we're talking about two uh, cities in the region of Campania. Mm. Uh, fertile, fertile right. land, abundant region of. It's the considered Empire. one of the nicest regions of Italy during this it period. It is, which makes it even more awful that a volcano would decide to erupt and ruin everybody's good time. Yeah, what year is this again? <laughs> okay, so basically, we're talking about an eruption that happens in 79 AD. Mm. Okay, so to give you a bit of a background on Pompeii and Herculaneum. Please do. Oh, I shall. I shall. I'm playing the questioner in this episode. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, um, Pompeii and Herculaneum have a long prehistory, which I won't go into the details of now. But, uh, you know, there's been Greeks, there's been Etruscans in the region, there's been Oscans, there's been all sorts running around that, uh, that town. It's a bit of a mixed bag. It is a little bit. But the important thing, I suppose, for us is that um, they do, of course, become allies of Rome as Rome expands in power. And we've been looking at the expansion of that power. We're not quite up to the point where they're going to have, you know these sorts of allies, but eventually they do. Uh, And unfortunately, as allies, they get rather unhappy one day and they decide to fight against Rome in the social war in the first century BC. Ah, yes. Well, this is quite some time prior to the eruption. It is. But it's after they lose this war that they really become incorporated properly into the Roman Empire. Awkward times. Indeed. And I think that's quite an important point to make, I suppose. That it's, yeah. It, it is before, like a, a reasonable long time before the eruption. Well, but social not wars as, are sort of like 90 yeah, BC. BC. Yeah, but you perhaps expect that they were like fully part of Rome much earlier. At least mm. I always did. So that's why I like to point that out. Just in case people are as out of whack as I am. <laughs> Here is your timeline. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but then speeding right ahead, by the time we get to uh, the first century AD, we are, of course, in the Empire. 
we are no longer in the Republic. So you've got emperors ruling who generally reside in Rome at this point in time. Indeed. Yes. And um, not too long before the eruption, there was a fairly significant earthquake. In around 62, or people are now saying 63 AD, mm-hmm. there was an earthquake that was significant enough that it's been, it was mentioned in a few sources, and potentially also there might be like some artwork in one of the houses in Pompeii that refers, that you know, sort of depicts what happened during okay. that eruption. Um, so we know that there's some uh, tectonic activity in the area. Exactly. The problem is, we know that. <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> but unfortunately the ancient romans wouldn't necessarily connect the volcanic oh sorry the earthquake activity with potential volcano full steam <laughs> fair enough fair yeah. enough they probably saw it as a sign of the gods or yeah. some sort of i mean yeah exactly we know that when we sort of look at the region that yes it is this lovely fertile region one of the reasons, perhaps, it's so fertile is because it's quite a volcanic it's area. It's quite unstable. It is. We've got, like, you know, I mean, for anyone who's been to Italy and knows anything about Italy, you know, it's kind of famous for this, like, line of volcanoes, which, you know, Vesuvius is a part of, like, Etna mm. and that sort of thing. And uh, they're quite dangerous <laughs> when they choose to uh, to erupt. And I believe that it's pretty active even today. <laughs> ah, yes. I would imagine so. Yeah. So this earthquake activity is happening under the rule of Nero? Yes, it is. Um, and basically, we know um, we know that they weren't entirely unaware that Vesuvius is not just like a mountain. You know, they know <laughs> that it has been active in the past. We're just not sure if they're aware that it is still active. Because mm. we have these sort of vague references in sources like Vitruvius and Diodorus of Sicily, um, where they talk about how Vesuvius had erupted and had like poured forth fire. But they seem to be indicating that it hasn't done that for a really long time. And therefore, it really might have been a case of they thought all was ground on the mountainside. Maybe the gods are being placated now and everything will be fine. Yeah, exactly. Like, the only thing we really have, like, directly from Pompeii and Herculaneum is there's this fresco in the House of the Centenary, um, which seems to be from around the first century AD, which sort of has, like, a picture of what we think is Vesuvius, um, with a figure of, like, Bacchus and that sort of thing. So it seems to be more associated, I suppose, with, like, you know, this is like a wine-growing region. <laughs> Everyone's having a good time. And those, and those eruptions are yes. purely for pleasure. <laughs> exactly. Let me assure you. <laughs> the earth only moves at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, now, I suppose the, thing about the, the other thing about the earthquake is that some people in the past, um, and even kind of a little bit these days, but not so much, have interpreted that as being an event where a lot of people who lived in Pompeii and Herculaneum and other places in the region would have left. Like it was that, the damage was that significant that it caused like sort of massive social upheaval and some people were like, right, that's it. I'm cashing in my chips and I'm leaving town. Um, Fair call. Yeah. <laughs> Most archaeologists these days are sort of more on the side of, well, actually it's just that it caused a lot of damage. There's a lot of rebuilding going on and there are other changes that happen to be going on at the same time, like the rise of the freedmen and that sort of thing. Not necessarily saying that anyone wealthy or you know well off decided just to leave town and leave them, <laughs> leave the poor people to their misery or oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, not really the case. But there is a lot of debate about what kind of state the towns were in at the time of the eruption. Like, were there a lot of people mm. living there? Um, and therefore, there's a lot of debate, obviously, like about population size, how many people escaped, how many people died. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the short answer is though. 
Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, these are the sorts of details that we just cannot reconstruct from no. the available historical record. No. Um, so we have to work with what we've got, which yeah. appears to be some pretty nice places yes. uh, that are destroyed. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but like, handily preserved. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, reasonably prosperous towns, but mm. nothing that special. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Pompeian Herculaneum. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're out of the way a little bit from the center of Roman power. Um, they're yes. considered to be in a nice region yeah. um, that is also known for growing things. Yeah, so, like wine. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, like you so, can't grow wine. <laughs> like wine <laughs> well, so I planted these wine trees. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just squeeze you know. the trunk and have yeah. some wine. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but if it's a wine-growing region, then you can expect the towns to be not so massive yeah. and for the area itself to be reasonably sparsely populated yeah. with the vineyards yeah and that's so, it. we've got like you know these lovely villas of which you know perhaps i mean certainly some important people um had you know holiday villas and that sort of thing because they're kind of close to the sea um particularly herculaneum it really is quite close to the sea and so in the countryside you might have villas for people like you know, you know cicero who was around during the republic had one there we're pretty sure that um one of nero's wives papaya sabina had a villa there there's actually is a villa that if you go there they'll probably tell you it's hers but there's very little evidence to suggest that that's actually the case we're just guessing um so yeah certainly there were some wealthy people who had like pleasure villas there but there were a lot of villas there that also were sort of like working villas where you'd have you know your wine growing or you know and and also olive oil is a big thing so you might have like your olive trees and certainly um as well in this earthquake we hear of um like the earth opening up and just swallowing about 600 sheep so we know also that like wow yeah i know (laughs) I'm just oh. trying to win. I'm just trying to envisage that. <laughs> I know. And one day the earth became quite hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and it just opened, it just up. opened up and ate the and sheep. Yawned. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we know that there was lots of stuff going on in the region because it was yeah. such a nice fertile yeah. region. And even within the towns, we know that there was um, there were like little like olive areas and people growing like stuff for their gardens and stuff for the kitchens and that sort of thing. So there's certainly lots of you know, agriculture and that sort of thing going on. Hmm. Yeah. So, anyway. I setting, suppose, setting the scene. I'm setting the scene. <laughs> and I think the best way to really sum that all up is just um, to say, as one director of the British Museum once said, I believe, um, that these are ordinary towns that are destroyed in extraordinary circumstances. And that's what makes them special to us. Okay, because, um, because of the way they are destroyed, it preserves the evidence of, like, sort of ordinary life, I suppose. Um, which we just don't always otherwise have, yeah. you know, and that's what makes them special. They weren't particularly special <laughs> in their life, <laughs> although they were, of course, particularly Pompeii was famous for its uh, delicious fish sauce. <laughs> well, <laughs> then. Have a bit of that on your breakfast bagel there, Dr. G. Well, <laughs> you know, but was any preserved? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, the fish sauce is supposed to be... Yeah. Disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> you, can, you can, I believe, find uh, recipes for garum, um, which is what uh, I think you would refer to it as, mm. uh, online if you choose to uh, make some fermented fish sauce for the holiday season. Oh. Yum. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. But, dear listeners, if you're interested, yep, by all be means done. experiment. It can be done. Yep. <laughs> anyway, but to get to the actual eruption itself. 79 AD. <gasps> 
But what time of year, Dr. G? What time of year? Oh, do tell. <laughs> well, generally, the traditional date has been the 24th of August. And this is one of the things that oh. we said in our last podcast. The 24th of August. Now, but is that is that a sort of date that we can rely upon? This is the thing. Okay. We have... Uh, we're basically sort of using uh, Pliny's letters as our guide hmm. that it would have happened uh, on this date. Uh, yeah, so this is, this is his letter... Letter 16 from book 6 of his letters um, of the younger Pliny. Look it up. Yeah. <laughs> if you're interested, Indeed. the source material is there. Yeah. Um, and he notes that the 24th of August is the time he starts recounting the story of his uncle, yes. Pliny the Elder. Um, and he dates the start of the eruption to the 24th of August. Yes, because Pliny the Younger is basically our sort of eyewitness account. And I am using my flesh rabbits there, people, and I'll explain why in a second. <laughs> the thing is, we have various versions of this letter preserved. And there are actually more than 12 different dates given in these manuscripts. It just happens that the one that's sort of been picked up and used the most often, I suppose, or whether it's, you know, I don't even have time to think about how this happened, but generally the 24th of August is the date that gets sort of passed on as the date. Mm -hmm. Um, But new evidence is suggesting that perhaps it was actually a little bit later um, and more of an autumn date. Okay, so for example, um, one of the things that Pompeii is famous for, of course, is the plaster casts of the victims, like of their bodies. Um, And basically it's because when some people died at Pompeii, um, because they sort of fell onto a layer of ash, um, and then because of the way that they were preserved with you know, more volcanic material on top of them, their bodies were able to, how lovely is this, I hope you're not eating, sort of drain away the liquid, and they sort of left you know, this, this gap, basically, um, of their form, perfectly preserved. And some of them you know, prov- provide so much detail that we can actually tell like, the layer of clothing that they were wearing. Okay, and we have some bodies where we can tell they were wearing like heavy layers of clothing, which wouldn't seem to make sense for an August date, unless they're just rugging up to stop, you know, <laughs> stop them getting knocked out. Yeah. And <laughs> well, maybe they're trying to save themselves from the hot ash. Exactly, yeah. So we're not, we, we're not entirely certain. But there's other evidence, such as um, the fact that um, we do actually have fruits and that sort of thing preserved because of the, the heat of the eruption, they sort of carbonized these fruit remains or sort of preserved the fruit remains, and we can tell that they were fruits that probably would have been picked in August. Okay, yeah. like pomegranates. And so, delicious. Yeah, exactly. And recently, there's been um, evidence of uh, a silver denarius from the reign of Titus, which, given the, um, the details on that coin, like when he was acclaimed emperor and that sort of thing, it would also indicate that it would have to have been minted in September. <laughs> then again, of course, is this coin from you know from the actual time of the eruption, or is it somehow been mixed in with the the finds? This is these are the questions. But so yeah, basically nowadays people are leaning more towards a sort of October, even November date as well, when it's actually happened. Yes, well that's quite a different time of year, isn't it? It is. How could Pliny have gotten the date so confused? Or why is the manuscript tradition so varied? Yeah, well, it's just, it, I think it's a, I a good... I have some ex- questions. Yeah, it, it, I suppose it, it shows... It's a good example, I suppose, to show us how, um, as things get copied and passed down through the ages, you know, things can become so varied. Um, and... Well, you know, yeah. I could understand a slip in, the, like, the, the date itself. Yeah. But a slip to a different month entirely? Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a much bigger mistake and almost yeah. a deliberate sort of 
correction, if you like. Yeah, I know. Yeah. To the script. Exactly. Because, I mean, of course, when we say we've got Pliny's letters, we don't literally have the original letters anymore. We just have these copies. Don't be like that. Yeah. <laughs> when we've got the letters, we've got the letters. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, perhaps we should look at the actual letters themselves and who Pliny the Elder and who Pliny the Younger actually were. So Pliny the Elder was basically the naval commander at Mycenaeum, which is within the region, um, but quite a distance away from Pompeii and Herculaneum. Yeah, so this is in the northern bay yes, near Naples. Exactly. So yeah. it's across the way. Exactly, it's across the way, but it's like a you know a good distance away. Yeah. In terms of like as the crow flies. But they do yeah. like they have the visual of like the totally. the mountain range. Yeah, exactly. Of which Vesuvius is a part. Yeah, exactly. Um, off in the distance. Yeah. I mean, like they're mountains over there. Yeah, exactly. So Pliny the Younger is his nephew, and he is staying with his uncle, and uh, his mother is also there. Uh, when basically the eruption starts to take place. And it's such a huge eruption because it has because it hasn't erupted in such a long time. There's basically like a plug. I mean like something sort of <laughs> like a champagne cork, I suppose. That wasn't what I was thinking. Yeah. But please continue. <laughs> what were you thinking? Dirty, no, dirty girl. Not, not even no. <laughs> not even gonna say <laughs> she's a filthy child. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically there's like a plug so it's kinda of like a champagne cork in that when finally that like that much pressure builds up to break through the plug it's, you know, it's going to be a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. And so basically um, he's watching this. They both, they're all, they're all watching it happen from across the way. Hmm. Um, and what they observe um, is written down in these letters, which Pliny the Younger writes. But he writes them about 20 years after it actually happened. Yeah, so... Um... The nature of the letters is really quite interesting. Um, why does Pliny recount this story in the first place? Yes. And it seems, um, at first blush, to be because Tacitus <laughs> has requested the narrative. Yeah, um, and Tacitus is a Roman historian who was writing the history of... Um, he's written a history of the Julio-Claudian emperors. He's written a history of you know, the year of the four emperors and the Flavians who are... Or he will write that who are in power at the time of the eruption. Yeah, Tacitus ends up being one of the few historians that we have yes. um, with a sort of a sizable back catalogue which we can and access. One, one of my personal favourites, I imagine. Well, <laughs> people either consider him the height of style because he's got his own thing going on. He does. Or horrific at Latin and somebody should have told him about that. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, his work's stand out in historical records. So they're extant, and that's good for us, which means that we've got... Is that what a true measure of a good historian? Well, he would survived. Yeah. <laughs> On some level, I think that is, yeah. that is yeah. true, because yeah. uh, why would you bother to copy and preserve exactly. things that... There wasn't some didn't, yeah, yeah, didn't seem worth the bother. Yeah. Um, so there is... Yeah, it's a... It's a sort of a flimsy argument, but it's... Yeah. It, but it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly one that does the rounds. Yeah. And... So we have this situation where we know who Tacitus is. Yeah. We know who Pliny the Elder is because we also have a back catalogue of his writings, yes. which are extant. Yes. For those um, of you who like ancient world trivia, check out his natural history. Yeah. the it's natural extensive work. <laughs> the natural history is a phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. And it is a great resource in many respects. 
um, for all sorts of things that appear to be miscellaneous yeah. um, about the ancient world. Yeah, and all sorts of crazy things. You couldn't even, I couldn't even begin to list. Yeah, I'm not yeah. even going to attempt to categorize the work. It's yeah. just incredible. Um, kind of encyclopedic, I suppose. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so we know Pliny the Elder through his writings. We know of Tacitus yeah. through his writings. And then we have this sort of intermediary in Pliny the Younger. Yeah. So Pliny the Younger and Tacitus are contemporaries. Yes. And they're and both uh, in pub- you know, were involved in politics and public life. Yeah. So yeah. And they're both public figures. They're both politicians. Yeah. And they are communicating with each other about Pliny the Elder. Yeah. Um, so the previous generation and what has gone on um, in the lead up to his death. Yes, because he uh, dies famously during the eruption. And I might add... He probably didn't need to do that. <laughs> he could have avoided dying yeah. <laughs> through the eruption. Yeah. Um, but some people walk one way when perhaps they should walk another. Yeah, right. um, there are yeah. lessons to be learned. And it seems to be, as, at least as far as... Basically, there are these two letters from Pliny the Younger, you know, seemingly responding to the request of Tacitus. He's writing his history. He basically seems to have said, hey... I hear you were around when that whole shindig went down. Yeah. Care to write about it? Deets, man. Yeah. Send me the details. <laughs> and Pliny the Younger's like, text, dude. Yeah, I so will. <laughs> I'm so like excited that yeah. you are. Exactly. I remember it like it was yesterday. And he, so he sets down in like two separate letters that we have this account of what happened um, to his uncle and also, you know, to a lesser extent, I suppose, to himself during the eruption. And although, as I think you're about to say, Dr. G, we might have some problems with certain details, at the same time, his description of the actual eruption itself actually seems to have some merit, because we can kind of compare what happened at Vesuvius to later eruptions that we know a little bit more about, in terms of, say, Mount Pele or Mount St. Helens, which erupted in 1980 in the USA. And these seem to have been similar eruptions in terms of the scale and the way events unfolded. And so... You actually can call, like when you have these sorts of eruptions, um, where they're sort of explosive eruptions, um, you actually sort of generally call like the first phase of them, where they're sort of building and building and building, the Plinian phase. Oh, hello. I know. (laughs) Because because he basically says that he saw this cloud, you know, emerging from um, Mount Vesuvius, and it was rising like an umbrella pine. So you can kind of imagine it like a thin stem and then spreading out, you know, to quite a wide cloud on top. So that's sort of looked like an umbrella pine. And so those sorts of details are really fascinating because for a long time people didn't believe him and didn't give him any credit. <laughs> but then we saw what happened at these other eruptions, which are rare because there's something, you know, such a huge scale. And we can kind of go, oh, that's oh. what he's talking about. Oh, that's yeah. how you get a cloud of hot, dusty yeah. ash. <laughs> Delicious. You, you get a, you get an umbrella pine cloud. Yeah. Boo. Um, everybody's very unhappy. Yeah. So his description is it's almost uh, poetic in a way. Mm. Um, its general appearance can best be expressed as being like an umbrella pine, for it rose to a great height on a sort of trunk and then mm. split off into branches. Mm. I imagine because it was thrust upwards by the first blast and then left unsupported as the pressure subsided, or else it was borne down by its own weight so that it spread out and gradually dispersed. Sometimes it looked white, sometimes blotchy and dirty, according to the amount of soil and ashes it carried within it. And that's, again, that's exactly what we know to happen, because basically during these types of eruptions, you've got this huge amount of pressure. So just, like, you know, all this ash and volcanic material and gas, it all just shoots up, 
into this massive cloud, but then gradually as the cloud builds and the, the mass of it, you know, it gets heavier and the stem underneath is sort of like the column underneath is sort of losing that initial pressure, gradually it won't be able to support that cloud anymore. And that's when you'll get this rush as the cloud collapses and descends. And it will also, the kind of material that's in there will change as the volcano is going through the whole process. So we know from the layers of um, volcanic eruption, like the stratigraphy, that there was, you know, like sometimes you'll get like grey pumice, that sometimes you'll get, you know, sort of more of a white colour. There'll be different sizes, you know, there'll be all sorts of different types of material going on depending on what stage of the eruption you're talking about. And so, again, this is where we can see this. Yeah, it just depends on how big your plug is. Yeah. <laughs> you are just disgusting and I refuse to dignify that with a response <laughs> just observing what I find <laughs> anyways what else do we have a problem with with his letters Dr. G well why does he even write them in the first place yeah let's well, let's face it yeah um because they seem to be a little bit of a rhetorical exercise mm. um as a way to hold up a mirror to the self Ah, yes. Um, glory, glory be. Yeah, well, I mean, Pliny sort of starts out, Pliny the Younger starts out um, letter 16 um, with this sort of effusive praise of Tacitus um, being like, oh, you're, you're the man to write this sort of stuff down. You know, a great man is a man who leaves a written legacy, like my uncle. But an even greater man is a man who still writes about other people's greatness. Such as yourself. So not only not only can you be great by writing, but you can be great by writing and then being written about. Yeah. And surely this is where my uncle is at right now, and it's surely where you will be too, <laughs> dear Tacitus. This is layer on layer of greatness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the greatness builds up over time. And the way that you're, you know, uh, sort of recognising my uncle right now is such a measure of his worth. Um, In a word, Tacitus, you are amazeball. <laughs> I'm so I'm so grateful. I'm so flattered. And the fact that I'm related to that guy means that there is a lot of reflected glory for myself. Hint hint. Nudge nudge. Wink wink. Yeah, yeah. So there seems there is a bit of a an argument to be made and certainly um uh, scholars have made it. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Jones in particular. Yeah. 2001. Um, it's writing about the sort of rhetorical construction of these letters. Yeah. Um, and this, the extent to which um, the details that Pliny the Younger is providing yeah. are all part of a broader strategy uh, to reflect well upon Pliny the Younger. Yeah. Um, this is the sort of man my uncle was, if only I could aspire to capture that spirit in my own Life. Yeah, because I mean, Pliny the Younger, as far as we know, because I don't know that we have really like terribly exact dates for his life and death, but he was still very much in the heyday of his career at this point in time when he would have been writing to Tacitus. Well, uh, he has, and his career has interesting facets about it. Yeah. Probably most famous for the panegyric exactly uh, yeah. that he writes for. Trajan. Yeah, your your fave. (laughs) (laughs) It's Uh, just a little crush. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he expanded the empire to its largest extent. Um, How can you not like Trajan? Anyway. um, (laughs) You said the size didn't matter. (laughs) Sometimes it does. Um, In any case, um, it seems that Pliny the Younger is one personally invested in the story of his uncle, which is important for him politically because... uh, he is the maternal uh, nephew yes. 
of Pliny the Elder. Yeah. Um, and as far as we can gauge, he becomes Pliny's son through a testimony adoption. So right, yeah. at the point of death. Hence so, the name. It's not just a coincidence. Yeah, it's not just a coincidence. <laughs> and so Pliny the Younger has, owes a lot of his sort of political fortune yeah. to the fact that... He's related. To he's related to Pliny the Elder. This giant. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this man yeah. who, on the threshold of everything, goes and chases a volcano. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, and so basically, from what um, Pliny says in the letter, um, he, he basically describes it as they all see what's going on. Um, and he, he does relate as well that there had been, I think, some, some tremors, but that, they, that this sort of activity wasn't unusual for the region, which you can kind of expect, you know. So people are used to the sort of slight earth tremors on a reasonably regular basis. Um, but they see this, you know, large cloud, you know, just building up and building up. And we're talking about, you know, sort of 15 to 20 kilometres in the sky. So it would be quite significant. And the way Pliny paints it... It's going to be blocking it, out the sun a little bit Yeah, there. exactly, yeah. The way, and this is in the middle of the day as well. The way Pliny paints it is that Pliny the Elder is, A, fascinated, somewhat magnetised by the side. Um, and he's sort of thinking, you know what? This looks like a fine day for sailing. <laughs> I'd like to get a closer look at this uh, natural phenomena. Um, on top of which, he also receives a letter from friends who are in a smaller sort of resort town in the region it's called Stadia. And they sort of are like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? Help, help, help. You're our only hope. And, <laughs> and for this reason, um, he sort of, you know, sets off, you know, to sort of get a closer look. As you might expect, though, as the volcano continues to erupt, the sea's a little choppy. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah, and so he can't actually, like, go to Pompeii or Herculaneum themselves. He has to sort of go to his friend's villa um, mm. and go and stay with them for a while. Now, although Pliny might be trying to paint this as a very impressive uh, undertaking, it would seem that Pliny the Elder doesn't necessarily quite have a handle on exactly what's going on because when he arrives at his friend's place... You know, they have a church, they have some food, <laughs> he goes to sleep, seemingly probably writes down some notes about what he's observing. Yeah, everything seems to be fine. Yeah. Like, you know, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And now for some dinner. Yeah, exactly. It's a, and then finally, you know, seemingly sort of middle of the night, early morning, they wake up and realise, you know what, I think we're going to be blocked into the house by the falling ash. Yeah, so the, I mean, the way that the letter proceeds sort of yeah. unfolds it as a dream dramatic narrative exactly you know meanwhile on Mount Vesuvius <laughs> broad sheets of fire and leaping flames blazed at several points yeah their bright glare emphasized by the darkness of night <laughs> my uncle tried to ally the fears of his companions <laughs> yeah exactly he comes across as like this brave guy going never fear <laughs> you see that fire I'm not scared yeah and so they, they seemingly decide Have a glass of wine yeah they seemingly decide that let's uh let's go outside uh, where, you know, we're not going to be buried alive. <laughs> For safety, let's tie some pillows to our heads. That should be fun. <laughs> because by this stage, the plane has been erupting for a while, and I believe that the um, the size of the volcanic material <laughs> that it's producing is probably getting somewhat larger mm. and probably capable of knocking a person unconscious, if not killing them by this point in time. So tying a pillow to your head might actually seem like a wise move. Well, yeah. So apparently there was danger of falling pumice stones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, you, as you do. <laughs> anyway, so they basically, they head out and they're sort of milling around 
probably not knowing really what to do. But this means that Vesuvius has been erupting yeah. uh, actively um, for about 24 hours now. Yeah, it's, it's been. Yeah, it was spotted during the day. Yeah. Once it was spotted, Pliny the Elder is like, off to see my friends yeah. at the villa. Mops in his boat, does his thing. Yeah. Stays there the night. They wake up in the night. And they're like, oh, yeah, that kind of looks bad. Let, but let's cover ourselves with pillows. It'll yeah. be fine. And then it's daylight Saved again. Yeah. <laughs> then it's daylight again. But it's still dark in yeah, the sky absolutely. from the amount of material that is now being pushed out of this volcano. Absolutely. I mean, but essentially, we're pretty sure that no matter when the eruption happens, it happens over a couple of days. Mm. Uh, and it, it would be really scary because, you know, you, particularly if you were in the places closer to, like Herculaneum and Pompeii, you would be experiencing, like, really violent earth tremors. It, even though it's day, it would seem like night. Mm. Um, and, of course... Basically, what's, what starts to happen is um, Pompeii gets the sort of warning signal, I suppose, of the falling ash layers. So you've got pumice, the pilii, you know, all that sort of thing just sort of falling from the sky for a long time. But Herculaneum doesn't get that because the wind direction is different. Okay, so it's sort of blowing, the wind direction is sort of blowing towards Pompeii, which is in a different direction to Herculaneum. And Herculaneum is also a bit closer than Pompeii to Vesuvius. So basically, what happens is a particular volcano- volcanologist called um, Sigurdsson has said that there are there were perhaps like six surges, basically. And these surges are basically when that column can no longer support the weight of the volcanic material in the cloud, and that cloud collapses. And it's sort of like, you know, super fast-moving volcanic material just hitting these towns. And basically, we're pretty sure that Herculaneum gets hit first because it's closer. Okay, and essentially what you have is a surge followed very shortly after by um, a pyroclastic flow, which is essentially like the surge is sort of the material that's moving faster, so like the gas clouds and that sort of thing, whereas the flow kind of becomes separated as they roll down the mountain, uh, and it's sort of the heavier, denser material, which you often see described as being some sort of like sort of molten volcanic lava yeah exactly yeah exactly that's you'll, you'll see run away <laughs> run slowly away. Yeah. <laughs> it's not moving very fast but yeah. it will kill you and because of this basically um herculaneum we're pretty sure got hit with perhaps temperatures of up to 400 to 500 degrees celsius yeah so basically that's an instant death my friends yeah exactly so the first and the second surges hit herculaneum but they're not large enough to reach Pompeii at this point in time. And for a long, long time, people thought that everyone from Herculaneum, pretty much apart from like a random, I think like 12 bodies, which we found in the town itself, like including like a baby in a cot and that sort of thing. Most of the people therefore must have escaped. And Herculaneum is quite close to the sea. Maybe they got out, you know, in time, even though the water would have been choppy. Not really sure. But then in the 1980s, 1982, a pioneer listeners, <laughs> we discovered um, all these about, you know, 300 bodies down by the shore, uh, the ancient shoreline. Yes. Um, and these people, as you say, given the position that we sort of find their skeletons in, um, given the fact that they all seem to sort of die at the same time, we're pretty sure that they literally would have gone, and then... Yeah. And... Dead. Yeah, exactly. And they essentially, most of them would have died from what we would call thermal shock, mm. which is basically the temperature is so hot, it kind of cooks you. Yeah. <laughs> You're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're done. Yeah, and like the force that when it hits you is so great that the basically there are some people who are sort of taking shelter in what again you'll see, you'll see referred to as boat sheds, but it's actually sort of like a substructure of a building that was on top. 
Um, some people were taking shelter down there by the seashore. We're not sure exactly what they were like, what they were doing. Were they waiting to be rescued? Did they think they were going to be safe there? Like, we don't well, know it, it would be a reasonable assumption, I think, to assume that if you could get into the water, yeah. that you might be safe. Exactly by yeah. ducking under the water. Yeah. Um, but it depends really on how fast the material from the volcano is moving. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we're not sure if they were waiting for something, whether they were planning an escape. Yeah. And they, you know, the volcano just caught up with them. Yeah. Or whether even being at the shoreline and maybe even hiding in the water yes. was not enough. Yeah. Um, because once that material hits... Um, yeah. And, and as we said, like, they might have gone to the shoreline thinking that this was a viable means of escape and then found that because of you know what was happening like with the earth tremors and that sort of thing, it was just too dangerous. Well, or maybe it's a Titanic situation where they just don't have enough life. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's yeah. run to the shore and they're yeah. like... Everybody else just took the boats. Yeah, and there like, ain't no more boats left. Yeah, and like the initial assumption was, oh, well, maybe these are the people that couldn't get away. So like the elderly, the young, the sick. But the testing on the on the remains has revealed that actually it's quite a you know a broad spread of the population, and therefore that's not the case. So we're really back to square one in terms of why they're there. But nonetheless, they were there. Some people were outside though, actually on the actual sort of you know shore itself, not shielded by anything. And these people were hit so hard by these surges that you know i think you've got one example where one guy's got like a leg bone through his skull like it's like hugely powerful you know um, and again you can sort of compare it to like the modern eruptions to sort of get an idea where you know like really solid walls can just be knocked for meters you know it's massively powerful mm. and particularly the people on the beach um they were cooked you know cooked at such a temperature that if you look at like the inside of their skull it's like blackened and their skull has cracked because their brain boiled and basically exploded their skull. I mean, it's not... It's not that is not the way anybody wants no, to die. Yeah, and like the people inside the, you know, who were sheltered still had similar sort of symptoms, but not quite as bad. Um, but yeah, we can definitely say the temperatures were much hotter in Herculaneum. And then, essentially, the pyroclastic flow comes along not long after and sort of covers them and covers them in level after level of this flow. Basically, to the point where Herculaneum ends up being buried in about 23 meters of volcanic material, which, when it cools, is like solid rock. Yeah. Hence the preservation. <laughs> and thus, it is perfectly preserved. Yeah. Underneath the lava. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just bitch to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nasty to chop through that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> what's <laughs> underneath is amazing. Which is why so many times people start to excavate there and go, you know what? No. Too hard, basket. <laughs> I'd like to keep trying, but this is tough. Yeah. <laughs> How much do I value knowledge? No, not that much. Yeah. Anyway, Your only way to melt this stuff off is to have another volcanic eruption. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so that's why where Pliny the Elder is, it's, it's a different story, though, because mm. Pompeii has the sort of, you know, the ash fall. So presumably some people leave. But again, we can't really be sure what the population level was like in the, in, you know, to begin with. And then because of the darkness and because of the layer that's building up like quite rapidly, it could have made escape quite difficult once the you know, eruption starting to happen. Yeah, and the recount of Pliny the Elder's actual death, yes. according to his nephew, yeah. um, seems to suggest that it, it ends up being gas. Yes. And, and uh, the, the poisonous nature of the gases. Exactly, um, that and that's, him. that's exactly it. Basically, by the time you get to surges, maybe three, but probably more likely four and five, these are getting, like, the surges as they come out, they're getting more and more wide-ranging, more and more powerful as the volcano sort of spits out its last... You know, sort of 
I'm yeah. doing this Energy, thing yeah. now, guys. Yeah. I'm doing it. I'm going to get you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so close to being done now. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Um, but yeah, basically, um, we think sort of surges four and five would have killed anyone who was still in Pompeii. Um, and seemingly, um, surge six kills, you know, like basically it's like the, the final surge and kills like people in a wide range um, in the region. So presumably it's somewhere around here, Pliny the Elder is killed. Probably surge five and six, I would say, given where he is. Mm. Um, he's that little bit further away and he dies presumably from similar causes to what other people in Pompeii um, died from which is asphyxiation yeah yeah. where they basically are suffocated and it would have been fairly quick but not as quick as at Herculaneum like you would have probably had a few minutes probably of like suffocating which isn't particularly yeah. nice yeah. however having said that there is I believe evidence of some people in that region dying of thermal shock as well um, because we're still talking about temperatures that are like 350 degrees to 400 degrees Celsius. Still quite warm. Yeah. <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little spicy. <laughs> um, and of course... Is it getting hot in here? So take off all your clothes, <laughs> except for the heavy ones, because they'll protect you yeah, from yeah. <laughs> No, no, put them back on. Put them back on. <laughs> yeah, I so... don't know what to do. Oh, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, so presumably some people were killed because... Um, because of the ash fall, some people would have been killed um, as they were trying to take shelter in their houses and there were building collapses because of the weight of material mm. building up. Some people would have actually got conked in their head because some of these, yeah, some of these yeah, giant rocks yeah, falling out of the sky. They're heavy and yeah. they're falling at quite at a speed. speed. Yeah. <laughs> They've just been violently pushed out of a volcano. This is not a falling rock. It's no. a deadly projectile. And it's not like, you know, I'm just going to flick it over at you. It's like, kapow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, some people would have been died from those sorts of things, but far more common is the death by asphyxiation. Mm. And as you say, this is exactly what Pliny the Younger sort of um, says to us about Pliny the Elder's death. Do you want to uh, oh. relate to the point? Oh, end yes, yes. Of this? Well, so there's a there's a quite a lengthy description. Um, my uncle decided to go down to the shore mm. and investigate on the spot the possibility of any escape by sea, <laughs> but he found the waves too wild and dangerous. Um, a uh, sheet was spread on the ground for him to lie down. How delightful. Slaves. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and he repeatedly asked for cold water to drink. Mm. Uh, I think an indication of maybe just how hot it's becoming temperature-wise. Yeah. Uh, then the flames and smell of sulfur, which gave warning of the approaching fire, drove the others to take flight and roused him to stand up. He stood leaning on two slaves and then suddenly collapsed. I imagine... Uh, because the dense fumes choked his breathing by blocking his windpipe, which was constitutionally weak and narrow and often inflamed. Mm. So the suggestion that perhaps uh, Pliny the Elder suffered from some kind of asthma anyway. Yeah, and uh, I believe he was also perhaps a little rotund by this stage of his life. <laughs> Chad. <laughs> um, so in any case, he enjoyed the good life yes. um, and was finding it slightly challenging. Yeah. Um, when daylight returned on the 26th, Two days after the last day he had been seen, his body was found intact and uninjured, still fully clothed, and looking more like sleep than death. Mm, a sad end for a great man, in other words. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this tells us a lot, actually, in terms of uh, preserved remains, because mm. we have so many, well, well, what appear to be so many bodies that have been preserved because they're covered in ash. Yes. And the thermal heating death situation yes exactly. Um, yeah. but presumably there are so many more bodies that would have also been victims like oh, yeah in well, terms you still of find, yeah you still find skeletons at Pompeii mm. um, and, but the problem is that because of the way um, archaeology 
first dealt with these sites. Um, you know, the archaeologists that first came along, who weren't even necessarily archaeologists, I'm using that term loosely, um, they often, because they didn't have the technology to really do much with skeletons, they didn't really value them. So when they found them, they wouldn't necessarily like keep them all in one place or do anything with them. They just sort of chucked the bones into one particular location, just as like a storage facility. I'm very dissatisfied with this yeah. level of procedure <laughs> slash yeah. not procedure. But on the other hand, because some early archaeologists, notably Fiorelli, <laughs> um, he comes along in the, um, he's sort of uh, in charge of the sites from 1860 onwards, and he's the one that really recognises um, what these gaps, I mean, other people have known that, there were imprints of bodies, and they tried to cast them, but they hadn't been very successful. They'd only managed to produce, I believe, a breast, which then disappeared. <laughs> disappeared into some guy's spank bank. <laughs> we, we lost the breast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay, excuse me. I have to retire to my forces. Um, yeah. um, I'll be back in half an hour. Yeah, though. exactly, yeah. Whatever happened to it, it disappeared. <laughs> uh, but yeah, late, um, basically Fiorelli comes along and sort of masters this idea of um, basically producing whole body casts. Now, the good thing about this is not only does it tell us something perhaps about you know, the way people died, who died, you know, yada yada, but we now have the technology potentially, just this year in fact, to start looking at what these casts have preserved. Because of course the bones are still there, they're still inside the cast. Oh, excellent. Uh, and we're now figuring out, we're trying to figure out technology that will allow us to access what is inside the cast. Without destroying Without destroying it. the cast, yes. exactly. Because of course we've already lost some casts over the years thanks to the mafia cutting off their heads and stuff. We don't really lose any more. Guys. I know. Come on, mafia. Target real people. No, I'm just <laughs> like, focus on the living. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and also there is, um, most notably I suppose, Estelle Laser, who's uh, an Australian archaeologist who does a lot of work at Pompeii, um, she managed to make a cast using epoxy resin um, in recent years, which is basically um, much more flexible. Uh, you, it's much more easy to examine, like using CT scans and that sort of thing. It's transparent, so you can actually see what's inside. And as a result, you know, she's produced this whole profile of the Lady of Oplontus, as she's called, you know, this person as you can guess it's a person who's a woman from Aplontus hence the name um, and she's able to find a lot Quite of creative exactly yeah archaeologists they're up there <laughs> yeah. she's able to you know put together a profile of like her age her health and you know all that sort of thing because she was able to you know yeah, create be a bit more costume. intensive yeah, in terms yeah. of the way she could examine it. It's really so, quite yeah. exciting in it terms is. of the uh, additional information we can learn about what's going on. Exactly. So these sites. I mean, I remember. I, I think someone's once like I can't remember who, but one of the um, archaeologists once said that the further away in time we get from these eruptions, the more we know about them. Which is obviously only true up to an extent. Um, but in terms wait of, a minute, yeah, yeah. It, it's true in the sense I think that technologically we can you know, investigate more and more as time goes on. Unfortunately, though, as HSC students would know, conservation is an ongoing issue at these sites. These are sites that were not built to last for thousands of years. Are you telling me that even though the volcano, in, in all of its wisdom, decided yeah. to preserve these towns, it wasn't really its intention? So often human error has, uh, has undone the wisdom of volcanoes. Goodness me. And so by excavating it, you know, we've exposed them to the elements and all the other things that are going on, and these sites are decaying. So at the same time, obviously, we It's are. a race against time. It is a race against the clock. <laughs> Oh, history. Ever I know. So exciting. I know. How so, much can we find out before it all disappears? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we perhaps, I suppose, may as well pause there. 
we, we will leave our original episode up because we covered slightly different ground. Yeah, we, we, we explored Vesuvius in a very different way when yeah. we last did this episode. So this is by no means a rehash. Yeah. Uh, hmm. It's more no. revi- a revisit, I perhaps say. I think it's an expansion, taking a different angle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Breaking it down a little bit more. And, and the other thing to remember, especially you HSC students, you adorable things you, is that this is by no means obviously comprehensive either. You, by all means, should listen to your teachers and do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention to the question in your assessment, Charles. Exactly. But uh, hopefully that gives you a bit more of a, I suppose, a detailed breakdown of the uh, eruption itself. Um, and because... also some of the modern state of play with how we're thinking about the site and yeah, dealing with it. Because the way that we've approached um, excavating the sites and sort of exploring you know, what happened has been very much coloured by... Um, later developments you know like I mentioned at the beginning I was joking around by saying you know, it was a dark and stormy night and that's because um, one of the perhaps most influential um, recreations of life in Pompeii is the novel um, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton which is you know this highly romanticized account the last days of Pompeii um, well known for his you know sort of purple prose and that's a very romantic you know storyline and view of the site and it was inspired by his visit to the early excavations, but obviously it is a you know it is a novel, and it is this sort of very romantic vision. But it still shapes the way we see the site these days in terms of like the bodies that we find and the way we connect with the buildings. Mm. Um, and that's something obviously very much to keep in mind. But how much those earlier, um, perhaps artistic or political or whatever aspects impact on the way we view the sites now, rather mm. than perhaps as they actually might have been. Mm, indeed. Mm. Words of wisdom. Oh, I, I am. The doctor. I am eminently wise. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I suppose we shall wrap it up there. Thank you once again, Dr. G. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners as well. <laughs> indeed. Good luck with the exam. 